Hello everyone, Belle and Andrew back again, here to talk about peer support things. Um, so we're going to start off with another icebreaker question. Um, what's the worst piece of advice you've ever gotten from someone? First thing that came up, which I don't know if it's the worst, but a recently worst one is when I was sharing about having <laughs> um, a lot of self-hate, someone said, uh, basically just wait it out and eventually it'll go away. <laughs> and that made me feel even worse after hearing that. <laughs> that is really bad advice. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Yeah. Um... I mean, I think a couple of things come to mind and these are just more annoying things, not like this would have ruined my life or something, but I have a lot of issues with sleep and like when I talk about that, I swear there's always one person who's like, have you tried melatonin? And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, if you Google like sleep, you know, how to help sleep issues, melatonin is one of the first things you'd see. So I've had insomnia since I was really young. Of course, I take melatonin every night, of course. <laughs> um, the other one that came to mind was like, um, I was in Vegas with my mom and I think I won like a small amount of money, like 10 bucks or something like that. And I was like, oh, I, you know, I'm just gonna cash out cause like you might as well quit while you're ahead kind of thing. And my mom was like, no, you gotta like gamble the high stakes they win a high amount don't just win a small amount and then I lost everything I was like mom what are you doing <laughs> like I could have had 10 extra dollars and now I have no dollars <laughs> so yeah that was like kind of I I was so irritated about that for weeks <laughs> and I mean I think part of it wasn't like she didn't just give the advice she came over and sort of like pushing the buttons for me oh. so that was probably what made it worse <laughs> like not helpful <laughs> yeah taking taking my power of gambling away from me yeah <laughs> all right so um we're going to talk about social change today so andrew do you want to kind of give an intro to what you were thinking about for this topic? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> I think a lot of us peers can relate to this experience of being in a system where it's a strong hierarchy and there are people at the top and we're kind of somewhere towards the bottom. And when decisions come up, and we're asked for our input, more often than not, um, people with greater power have greater say. And so we just kind of get like accustomed to that. We just start saying to ourselves, this is just how it is. It, it's, this is the norm. And we, I think, do our best to try to get used to that. Some of us, we try to advocate in the ways that we can, but just because it's so commonplace and it, it's, um, really the way our society is structured, I think a lot of us feel like we can't really do much about it. Um, 
but I also see that relating to like society at large because even when we think about our leaders in government, um, people today I think yeah. disagree about what's wrong with our society, but I think everyone to some extent does sense that, yeah, something's off, something's wrong. And a lot of us, um, we might try to do what we can in our own domains to like help, but, um, or to vote. And that's still good. That's still like critical. A lot of us, I don't think, um, it feels like a lot of us don't th think it's possible to go beyond that. And that's because it would take all of us at once to essentially say, we want something different. This isn't working for us. Let's decide what we want. And regardless of who the people in power are at that time, all it takes is for the collective to come together and say that and then act on it. And there's nothing that people in power can do. Um, and when I say all of us, I'm including like all of us. Um, but that's a huge monumental thing. I, I think as far as peers go, um, there are even some divisions in the peer community. You know, there are certified recovery mentors. There are peers with lived experience of going through the mental health system successfully. And there are peers with lived experience of being traumatized by the mental health system. And so it's like, even though we're a relatively small community compared to other communities, uh, we still have divisions within the group of peer support and we still have disagreements and aren't fully on the same page. So even with that being said, I think if collectively we decided that this isn't working for us, this power, di power dynamic that we have, um, within the sphere of work we have, it's not working for us. My curiosity goes to like, what could we create with that mindset? Like what, what could happen mm -hmm. from that? Um, and I think maybe it could be um, in some ways a hearkening back to the pure roots, the CSX movement, because that's, that's the mindset they had at that time. You know, that's the origins of peer support, them coming together as a collective saying this is not working for us what do we want what would work for us and then together as a community like creating something yeah um and for those who don't know the cxs movement is the consumer survivor expatient movement um but yeah i mean i think there's a lot there um it's really hard to, because I was even thinking, like, now there's also, like, family, peer support. You know, you can qualify as a peer through having supported a family member. You don't even technically, like, in order to get certified, you don't even technically need to have your own lift experience, which kind of can complicate things. Um, and, yeah, I think it's also hard when, I mean, just the whole, not just peers, but like 
the mental health and addictions field in general, it just is like burnout is so high and it's, it's hard to like come together collectively when you're in survival mode. Um, I think probably, you know, the advent of like deinstitutionalization and those um, large institutions and asylums all being closed around the same time kind of gave everyone who was a part of that movement like a unified mission because they'd all been through something really similar. And now, you know, there's such a wide range of different experiences. I mean, two people can have like a different, a completely different experience at the same hospital even. So, um, it's, it's hard when it seems like things have become so, um, scattered and not to mention just like other general societal divisions that we have going on right now. Um, I think it's tough and it's, it's like, I want that. And I also don't really know how without like, just like giving up my day job, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's hard. That's hard for a lot of people, especially people who are struggling. Like it's, it's not easy just to, just to walk away from that. Yeah, and, um, I mean, to be fair, a lot of advocates didn't have jobs, you know, they had a lot more time on their hands. I'm not saying there were advocates who, you know, not like every advocate didn't, but, um, there were and are folks out there who, like, that type of advocacy work is their life's work that's what they do a lot of the time totally i imagine um, some of them were also probably on ssi or some kind of um, supplemental income to where, where they maybe could have extra time to, to advocate and do community-centered work and things like that potentially i mean i don't know i don't know that would be interesting to look at i'm not sure what that looked like for folks who were coming out of the hospitals during that time, like in the um, 60s. Yeah, that I'm was sure a while. What <laughs> the supports were in place were for folks, um, yeah, which is probably point. why they had to create their own supports. Like, the hell am so, I supposed to do now? <laughs> true, yeah. Yeah, I wonder if so, they supported each other even with resources like food and clothing and shelter. Yeah, and stuff. I, I, that would be cool to learn about. And yeah, um, yeah, it's kind of like the crisis created that opportunity for folks to come together. So, mm -hmm. I mean, we've already been through a pandemic. I'm not sure what other kind of crisis we would all need to come together. Don't jinx it, Nabelle. <laughs> or maybe jinx it, because maybe that's what we need. Yeah. Like <laughs> another Yellowstone or something. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> a, a, a few steps below Yellowstone. <laughs> yeah, 
I don't know what's in between pandemic and Yellowstone. I, I don't know if I want to know. <laughs> no. <laughs> but that's something that I've heard before that like we need some kind of like shared tragedy to bring us all together again, which um, it's a little odd to think about. <laughs> yeah. But that's something that is sometimes needed to build that kind of momentum. I think right now a lot of people are craving normalcy, you know, what it was like before COVID was a thing and wanting to get back to that. And I think that I just see it like even just going about my day, like people are not as nice drivers anymore. People are more kind of just like, focus on themselves, like going about daily life, I think. And I, I also think that's a natural reaction. I also notice it in myself too. So I'm not going to yeah. act like I'm high and mighty about it. I, uh -huh. I, I, you know, sometimes I'll be driving and I'm like, mm -mm, I'm not letting anybody in. You're not taking advantage of me today. Exactly. <laughs> uh, and to be honest, um, I feel like that even started back when this is not to offend certain people, but some portion of us feel this, so it's it's valid to say, I think. Um, when Trump was first elected, I think that's when a lot of us started to feel that as well. The, yeah. the heaviness of that and trying to process through that. And I guess you could say um, the other side of that maybe felt that heaviness too when Biden was elected. So um, Maybe. I, I think... <laughs> Part this of kind of what polarized people are, you know, these days. Yeah, I mean, I, I think part of it too, like, particularly thinking about, you know, the part of the country where we both live, I think that Trump getting elected was a rude awakening for a lot of folks. And when that happened, I, you know, of course, I had a lot of feelings about it. And I, one of the things that I did was I was like, I want to understand why people voted for Trump. Like, I want to look into this and understand, you know, what were the reasons? And I think that <laughs> kind of helped open up things for me a little bit to, you know, think about like rural communities with factory towns that have just been like totally abandoned and there's no support there. And, you know, Trump was promising to bring back these jobs to these towns that were destitute. And, you know, obviously we know he didn't do that, but I could see how, like, that could be really tempting for folks, especially if the other side is, like, not talking about that at all. And I think that, you know, we're such in such a bubble in the Portland metro area that a lot of folks didn't, even want to try to understand it was just like oh they're just you know racist whatever like kind of <laughs> like when Hillary Clinton was like the deplorables you know that voted for yeah. Trump it was just like that it was just kind of like painting everything with this wide brush rather than being like okay let's try to understand why this happened because then we can figure out, you know, how, how do we move forward? How do we like come together? And, um, yeah. I mean, I think that's a 
a huge issue. <laughs> like it's not, um, you know, isolated to any, you know, side or like place right. on the political spectrum. That's something that a lot of people are unable to do or consider is like thinking about what is going on in the mind of somebody that I really don't agree with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, in the sense, I like how you brought that up because so much of this stuff is interconnected. You know, people who, I just feel like I mean, I think a lot of people feel this way, but it just hits me. It's like the system's the system is failing and we're all trying to approach it from different ways. Like our different life experiences kind of color the way that we approach it. And so someone who's in a rural community and I guess we have to think about the culture of that like group. Like w when I try to put myself in that perspective and I've spent time with people like that. I've, I've had family friends where I've stayed there for the summer and like got to experience that culture and like get to know those people more. And so, you know, they are still just human beings. And um, just from what I remember of that and also trying to put my perspective into their perspective there's a strong community like centered around the the church basically and um christian ideals but it's it's more than just a religion itself it's it, it ties in that community together it's it's you could say it's not just a religion it's a culture and it sort of weaves in the norms and the, the morality and all that stuff. So and shared values, shared values. And, you know, when people get sick, you know, the whole community comes together, you know, that's tied in with that. So, yeah, I mean, that's something I've thought about because <laughs> I, um, I had somebody ask me because, you know, I disclosed to them that I'm an atheist, but I'm comfortable talking about religion. And they were like, so do atheists like, get together and like sit around and talk about how they don't believe in God. <laughs> and I was like, mm, I guess on the internet kind of, but no, there's not like a building we all go to and we're like, yeah, let's sit around and talk about how much we don't believe in something and like build a sense of community around that. No. Um, so I think in that sense, it does like it can be more isolating to like not have that and that's an interesting it's funny how that person brought that up because they're probably for their reality their norm it's like yeah the the church is part of the community and without the church there isn't much of a community and so that they're probably thinking like huh like what's life like like outside of outside of that like do you have yeah that? <laughs> i could see it i could see how they could Think about that, yeah. Yeah, for sure. So <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it, it, it an atheist kind of meeting group talking about. <laughs> <laughs>
talking about how God doesn't exist. Yeah, I'm, and I don't know, wouldn't that get boring after a while? It's just like, <laughs> yeah, like, we're all here for the same reason, like, maybe we should start a chess club or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, maybe it would just be like a science group. Maybe that, that is pretty much what that is. <laughs> yeah, I don't know group. if I would want to show up every week for that, though. <laughs> But yeah, like, so, so that kind of culture, you could say, it's like, that's going to reflect. So, so their experiences are going to reflect their values and it's going to show in what they vote for and, um, what their priorities are. It, it, those sets of priorities, that set of priorities is going to be different from someone living in like an urban setting. Um, it's just a totally different culture, you know, or someone who's, um, been through higher education or works, works in the yeah. tech industry, or, you know, it's like, these are different worldviews. Yeah, it's, I think it's hard to, because, like, you know, we're still evolved to, like, be living in tribes. <laughs> like, the mm. way that life is set up right now is not, like, favored towards the way that humans have evolved. And so that probably contributes to it, um, being harder to come together, um, yeah. and being, you know, on Zoom and, you know, other, like, teleconferencing during the pandemic. I mean, like, folks are, like, just starting to come back to in-person, at least, you know, with, with peer work, you know, some of it had to always happen in person, but in terms of, like, you know, team meetings and stuff like for a long time that was still you know happening over zoom because it's like oh yeah. we can't have this large group of people in one place and it's tough <laughs> it's tough i mean there are researchers who are talking about how connection is so deeply tied in with mental health like if you're lacking connection you're more prone to um, suffering from mental health challenges yeah and if and then there's that who study as well of communities in third world countries and the, the prevalence of mental health conditions there mm -hmm. versus prevalence in like western first world countries and for a lot of those communities yeah. like um even something like the diagnosis of schizophrenia like those communities tend to see higher recovery rates and the the speculation hypothesis around that is it's mostly due to the, the strength of those communities. Yeah. And I would also think like how the people around them are reacting to it. Yeah. Um, right. The, the culture of the community itself, like how they value things. Like if, if they um, value non-ordinary experiences, or if they demonize those experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I think, and, you know, this could be a massive overgeneralization, but I'll just say for myself, like, if somebody had just been like, okay, Novella, just like lay on the ground and like talk as much as you want, and maybe we'll like cycle some people in and out of here to listen to you, but just, you know, do your best not to like wander off and 
you know, we'll bring you some food or whatever. And I yeah. probably would have been cool after like a few weeks of just like, mm-hmm. blah, 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 you know, like letting it all out. And um, I do, you know, wonder for other folks when the reaction is labeling, diagnosing, medication Mm -hmm. is, you know, are we really like doing that person a favor? The problem is we don't, just because the way like our society is set up, we don't have capacity to do that. Um, yeah, and that's in part because people in the field aren't getting paid enough, and so it's attracting less talent. Oh, I hate that yeah. word. It's attracting less people who want to work in that Yeah, area. I mean, it, yeah, there's, it does not even a matter of talent anymore, just like warm bodies. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. And, and burnouts. And... <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's it's been underfunded for a very long time and just very recently, at least in Oregon, starting to fund it more, but then now you're fighting inflation. (laughs) Cause it's like, oh yeah, wages have gone up, but then so has the cost of everything else too. It clicked into place for me recently too, that for a lot of, so a lot of these agencies that work with people who are considered like quote unquote severe, you know, people who have high, higher needs, a lot of the people who work in these agencies, um, it seems like a lot of them are still pretty new out of school. It's like the ones who are new and maybe incentivized to get their student loans for forgiven at some point if they work for a nonprofit for 10 years. Mm-hmm. like unfortunately, like they usually end up working with, like you could say the, the um, highest needs people in the most challenging cases. Whereas that's probably more appropriate for someone um, like someone like that, who's mostly going off of like book education and some, maybe some degree of internship. um, They're probably going to be less prepared for that. And so it's like, I mean, it's it's, it's all backwards because you get paid more to work with folks who are like live in the suburban life, you know, maybe have challenges that they need to talk about. But generally there's, there's not going to be as many like escalations, crises, behaviors that can be really challenging to navigate. It's very, and you can generally choose your own clientele. Like, if yeah. You don't want to work with someone like you can turn people away. So it's it's um it's it's like re- the reverse of what it should be. And I'm not saying this either to to say that um education is mostly what matters cuz like a peer who has like that lived experience, they're going to be more prepared honestly to work with a person who has lived experience with an extreme state for, just for example, is going to be more prepared to work with someone else who has that than a student who's fresh out of university and just like yeah. hitting the ground running, like, you know, yeah, because and... it's the lived experience and you could say the practical hands-on experience that is what prepares people. Yeah, totally. And, um, I also think that, um, peers 
do so much emotional labor as a part of their jobs. You know, I'm not saying that yeah. other yeah. roles don't, but it's like we have to be vulnerable as a like emotionally vulnerable as a part <laughs> of our jobs. And then also like educate other staff on like what our job is. Yeah. And also like potentially work with some of the most more challenging populations to work with and then get paid the least usually. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yep. <laughs> 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 yeah. So it kind of, um, I mean, both of us saw this experience where we worked at the crisis center, we saw our team unionize. And that was the first mm -hmm. time that that agency had that there was any unionization at that agency. Like that was yeah. ground. So I think that's, that could be one example of kind of what I was talking about earlier of the collective coming together and making decisions about like, hey, this isn't working, what would work for us? Like a union is a good example of that on yeah. sort of just like a really um, uh, local scale. Yeah, and that is something, I don't know what kind of efforts have been made, but I do know that there was a presentation at Apocalypse, which I want to go back and watch the recording of because I wasn't able to go to it, but there was a presentation about peers unionizing. Um, and that is definitely something that I think could be explored more, and I would like to learn more about it. Um, yeah. Do you know which peer agencies in this area, this region, are unionized? I shouldn't say peer agencies. I don't know. I mean, I think that... I know Cascadia. Well, yeah. I think Cascadia is, right? I think Cascadia is unionized, but that's not just the peers. That's everyone there, I think. As far this as I know. Question, but I'm, this is a question I have I'm for not you. familiar with the local like which places have unionized <laughs> yeah yeah um i was leaving our team right when we first unionized and so you got to like experience it more did you know yeah, it, it was i was in a weird position with that though because i was half-time supervisor in a different part of the organization so they like didn't want to include me in the union it was weird i was like but i'm not supervising this team so i don't know it's kind of strange gotcha. situation gotcha i didn't i didn't but really i was still like kind of on the sidelines for some of it but then i was like so what happens if people strike am i i'm just supposed to be like the only one who comes into work <laughs> you know i don't, I don't know <laughs> Which is still weird because, like you said, you were still on the team and you were yeah. supervising, but you weren't really you weren't even supervising our team. You were supervising other locations. Yeah. So <laughs> I think I think there was a misunderstanding with the union. Like they didn't really get what I was saying. But yeah. Um, all of that aside, it was very interesting to see, um, and I. I uh, looked at a job posting for that place recently, and it's so funny how, you know, management was like, this isn't going to change anything. Um, 
you know, they're just going to take your union dues and you're not going to get anything out of it. And it's like, there's a lot more benefits there now. <laughs> and the pay's a lot better. And yeah. it's like, yeah, you know, if I had gotten a $7 swing differential when I was still working there, I might have stayed on swing and not switched my schedule. Like, that sounds really nice. That's a big difference. <laughs> seven bucks yeah because before it was like 50 cents so I'm yeah like, hmm. so i wow anyway. <laughs> yeah so that's just one example of like hmm yeah. <laughs> massive doubts yeah and the thing is i think because the hard thing is a lot of folks who are working in peer jobs, like this is their first time being in the field at all. And so there's a lot of things that people don't know. Like some folks might not even realize that unionizing is an option for peers or have no idea of like what the steps are to um, work towards that. I mean, like I'm kind of familiar with the process, but like, I, I wouldn't really know how to get people together around that. And I'm also in management, so I'm like, you know, I'm, I will still, I'm still pro-union. <laughs> I don't care, but I wouldn't be a part of that <laughs> in, you know, where I'm currently at. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. I'm curious, um, because the union that was at our agency, it, so it was, um, so it, basically all the staff that we have there were under one, the same union, like one union together. And I'm curious what your experiences were or what your perception was around, um, did you feel like peers were represented as equally as other team members in the union? I feel like I can't fully speak to that because I never went to any of the union meetings. So. Um, I do know that there was a peer there who would regularly attend those union meetings. And I also had, um, after I left that organization, I did have, um, one of our former coworkers reach out to me and, um, ask some questions about the pay scale where I currently work for peers versus QMHAs. So where I currently work... The pay for peers and QMHAs um, is the same. So there's no like, oh, peers get paid less. And so what was happening with the union is they were wanting to, there was kind of like this um, disagreement around like, you know, they still wanted peers to be paid less because of like less education or whatever. And then, you know, like have it be like tiered up in that way. And I was like, well, first of all, you can be a peer, you can have a peer certification and have your QMHA. So mm -hmm. like, if you really want to go that route, you could you could say, okay, like pay them a little bit less until they get their QMHA in three years yeah. and then bring it equal. Um, but it's, I don't know, it's, it's ridiculous too, because 
if you look at like the billing rates in Oregon, it, peer support is a little bit less than case management, but <laughs> it's not, I don't think there's a difference. Like if it's a peer billing or a QMHA billing for the same codes, I don't think there's a difference. For peer, um, for, for peer billing, it's, so the codes I've been using, it's about, um, a $60 difference per hour. Are you talking about for peer support versus case management or if yeah. it's a peer support billing? What I'm talking about is like, say you have a peer support who bills for skills training and a QMHA who bills for skills training. It's going to be the same amount that you get back, right? Oh, I see code. what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. As far as long as they're using, as long as they're following the same coding, then yeah, it'll be the same. Amount. Yeah. So that, that's the part where I'm like, even though the the specific peer support billing code might be a little bit less, it's not like everything that peers bill for is reimbursed at a lower rate. That's so that's true. where I'm like, you should still be able still to pay them the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, peers can bill. For those who don't know, I've been doing independent billing, so I've been, you know, getting to know. I've been submitting my own claims and getting to know how that system works. And yeah, um, peers can bill for direct, you know, straight up peer support, uh, skills training and case management, as far as OHA is concerned. Yeah. So um, I don't know what the outcome was there, but hopefully it was favorable. And um, it sounds like they were trying to make sure that peers were equally represented and not just like still as you know lowest ranked <laughs> quote unquote yeah um that whole and, situation yeah. with like them getting lower pay was that you said that's what they wanted when you say they are you talking about like the union staff or are you talking about like the other teams um, I don't think it was the other teams. I think it was what was going on with the negotiations between the union and the organization. And so I don't know if it was the union itself or that was like the justification that the organization was like coming back with um, during the negotiation. But uh, yeah, that's all I can really speak to on it. I'm probably the wrong person to ask because I wasn't like really involved with that. Yeah. I do want to speak to this point about experience, though, because honestly, it's something I think I, I can say it's something I personally had an insecurity about and have had to and sometimes still have to, like, kind of do some inner exploration and be like, OK, that's a, a false belief. You know, here's a new belief. But this belief that peers have less education than, you know, say yeah. other people. And in some sense that is true. Like, I mean, obviously a peer doesn't necessarily have the same education as a clinician, you know, um, some might, you know, some, some peers do have advanced degrees. So yeah, that's generalization, but even that, that aside, you know, like just a person who's had direct experience with, Let's just say, um, I'll just throw out an example, you know, a peer who's been hospitalized 
and directly knows what it's like to go through that process to get admitted to um, just to be in that kind of setting and then to be released and have to like reintegrate into the community and have to in some cases like learn new skills to be able to function and cope and mm -hmm. to find community and find connection and learn wellness and recovery strategies or find a sense of purpose so that they can then build a life for themselves like that's a lot of stuff and that is education like learning how to do that yeah, yeah. so it's like um not everyone has had that experience yeah it's yeah i try to say like formal education you know you don't need a formal education other than your high school diploma to become a certified peer um, but yeah we have been educated in many other forms you know yeah street cred or like you, you know you can't really learn to navigate some of these systems from a book yeah um, and like the way that I can, you know, use certain language to get what I need when I'm starting with a new provider. That's, that's just something I've learned through experience. So yeah, I've definitely like experienced that um, insecurity too about not having as much formal education. But yeah, it's also important to remember, like, I know quite a few uh, peers who have um, their masters. I also um ran into a peer who used to be a doctor like he had his doctorate and decided he didn't want to do that anymore and started working as a peer um so yeah we uh don't always want to assume that that's going to be the case and it's i don't know i think people can get elitist about it like you know you don't know what you're talking about because you don't have the fancy degree. And I, on the flip side, like, I think because I have my bachelor's in psych, which I think is kind of useless, to be honest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think that even just that comes with, like, a little bit more authority in, like, things that I have to say and that's weird <laughs> personally and i think also because like you know i had to write papers i had to read research and do those things like it's kind of like i know a little more how to like speak that clinical language and understand it and navigate that a little bit easier than somebody who hasn't had that um yeah and I don't know. I think... And it's like, I wish employers yeah. looked more at the skills. Some do, mm -hmm. but I, I wish the, you could say the culture around workplaces was more focused on the, the skill set rather than the education because they don't always yeah. equally the same. And someone can still have an education and not have a very good skill set. I mean, that happens too. And um, for example, <laughs> like, and you know this can this can apply to a lot of things, but like, let's say um, a therapist who went through um, 
got the regular degree but doesn't know how to process trauma with people. And <laughs> if you're working with people with a lot of trauma and that skill set isn't there, it's like, yeah, that's... Yeah, or that's therapists crazy. who don't know how to talk about suicide. Or that, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I wanted just... to... Oh, sorry. Oh, no, this is just something I was thinking about the other day because um, I was helping with um, some slides for a different organization on um, how to just introduce and educate on what the peer role is. Um, and the, per the person who wrote it isn't working there anymore. And I was just like kind of providing some consulting. And there was a slide in there that said, um, peers may not know how to deal with suicidality in their clients or, or whatever, whatever it said. And I was like, bro, <laughs> there are a lot of people in this, in the mental health field who don't know how to talk about suicide, not just peers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I have like seen some of that incompetence firsthand. So that is a, a widespread problem in the field of mental health because you, at least the way it used to be was you didn't have to get training on that. You had to seek mm -hmm. out your own training in addition to <laughs> that master's degree to navigate those conversations around suicide. And so it's, I, yeah, I had uh, some reactivity reading that. And I was like, yeah, please, you know, the, there should be training around like, how you know if you're working as a part of a team like how do you want to navigate those situations because i don't think it's helpful if you know one person on the team has a different response to when somebody brings that up versus um you know other roles on that team i think there should be coordination and some unity around like how are we going to uh, address this when it comes up um but I don't think we should, you know, what if the peer has dealt with uh, thoughts of suicide or suicide attempts themselves? Yeah. They might be the best person to talk to about that. Yeah, exactly. That. Um, there, there's this concept by Ken Wilber. He, he has this map of, um, Trying to think of the best word for it reality experience um ken wilber is this guy who is a philosopher and talks about basically integral theory which was um him trying to connect different systems of thought and philosophies together and there's a map of how he divides up experiences there's internal external those two quadrants and then there's um individual and collective and so the way I kind of see it too with um, the value of peers is like it's it's the internal individual category of um, lived experience that it's it has a difference to it than I mean we all we all know this like there's a difference between lived experience and like book knowledge but just the idea that it's like the whole idea is that we need all four quadrants in order to have like optimum wellness. Like we need to be looking mm -hmm. at all four categories. We need to be looking at 
the individual. We need to be looking at the collective context. So like that person's community, society, culture and ecosystem, because all of those are going to have impacts on that person's well-being. Um, we need to look at the external, which is, you could say, um, the environment, but also their biology. External is just like also physical. So their biology, um, maybe their nutrition, hormones, whatever, you know, all the technical stuff. And then um, the subjective elements of the person too, like thoughts and feelings and experiences. So um, I'm sorry, actually, I misspoke earlier. It's um, subjective, objective, and then um, internal, I'm sorry, individual and collective. So the peer brings that subjective element to it that mm. someone, um, it's a qualitative difference from like the experience of being suicidal and all of what that entails a qualitative difference from reading about it and understanding about it in theory and or even you know more than that like someone who is like scanning the brain of a person who's suicidal and mm. doing blood tests on them and measuring their hormones <laughs> and measuring their neurotransmitters and coming up with like an assessment based on that mm. um the, which we don't see in psychiatry but let's just pretend that was in psychiatry yeah. <laughs> with sure I genuinely wish that is that would be part of psychiatry. I would be totally down for that because we need that. We need that. We need to see what's going on with the biology. And we also need the other three quadrants, too. And um, ideally, I think we would have this is what Ken Wilber advocates for, that we would have um, an integral model. We would have all four quadrants included in assessments of people. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, I don't know if science is far enough yet for us to be able to do that with um, Some psychiatry. Are, um, it's still it's still in its infancy. I mean, there's I mean, for one, there's a lack of funding in it because mm -hmm. honestly, a lot of funding is going towards psychopharmacology. So it's not really more funding is going towards that and less towards other things. Um, but there are, there are definitely like some promising approaches. Um, there's SPECT imagery, S-P-E-C-T that Amen Clinics is using. It's basically like they're doing, um, it's, it's a less invasive imaging of your brain. And um, they have a database where they've correlated different conditions with different, you could say, um, brain image constellations. And so, in theory, they can assess you just doing a brain scan. But like I said, it's still in its infancy. It still needs mm -hmm. some more research. Um, there's QEEG where it's they're taking like electrodes, putting them on your on your head, <laughs> and measuring your brainwave patterns. And mm -hmm. um, some of the more sophisticated tools for that, um, they do have an assessment feature. It's not used to formally diagnose, but you know, they, they can tell patterns too. Yeah, it, it would be good to have some more tools. Um, I remember like <laughs> when I was uh, experiencing an altered state and I was in the hospital, I was insisting on an MRI, like really insisting on one because I was like, something's wrong, you know, I have all this stuff going on. And 
after I had it done, they were like, it looks normal. And I remember thinking, how the hell does it look normal when I've been like hearing voices and like having these like beliefs of things happening that are not happening. And you know, I mean, I was still in the middle of that state. So I was like, what is the heck is this? Um, so yeah, that was a little bit odd. I was like, how could I be like going through all of these things that are so far outside of my norm? And the MRI looked normal. <laughs> to me, to me, I'm not surprised because, um, so uh, as a hypnotist, I know that they're like a really skilled hypnotist can make someone see an experience that isn't part of consensual reality. You know, like they can make mm. someone see a, like a white rabbit in the room mm. that other people aren't seeing. And that person isn't like mentally ill when they're in that state, they're in a trance. Mm. And um, hypnosis can even be used for like negative hallucinations, like to not see a chair in front of you that everyone else sees. So stuff like mm. that. Interesting. And then even looking at the neuroscience of just ordinary perception, like ordinary sensation, um, like visually, for example, like our brain is constantly filling in so much around of the world. Like I was, I was thinking about this. I've been thinking about this actually this week a lot. It, um, so even if you just think of how light reaches our eyes, it, it, like, mm -hmm. so right now I have no lights on in the room and there's light coming from the sun. So that's the only light source right now. And it's, coming into this room and it's illuminating everything. And if you think of how strange it is that that light is coming into this space and there's literally a sea of light that's hitting these two spots right here <laughs> of everywhere yeah. in this room and somehow it's creating some kind of cohesive, stable image, like that doesn't make any sense. Our <laughs> brain is filling in a lot of the holes. And it's doing this constantly, yeah. moment to moment. It's never not doing that. Yeah, that's why you can create optical illusions because our yeah. brain tries to fill in the holes and weird things happen. Exactly. <laughs> and that's, you know, like um, when someone's sleep deprived, they might see some perceptual distortions. Yep. <laughs> So maybe I was in a two-month trance. <laughs> yeah. Um, some hypnotists say that everyone's in a trance all the time. It's just the trance is changing. That's trippy. I don't yeah. think too hard about that one. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think the steps are that the peer movement needs to take to, like, come more together, like, be more unified in general? All I can say, the only thing that so far seems clear is what you said before. It, sometimes it takes crisis to bring people together. Hmm. So, um, And even earlier today, I was kind of thinking about this in relation to addiction, how 
it's like an, an addict doesn't change until they hit rock bottom, which means like mm -hmm. when their strategy for what they've been doing just no longer works like at all. Um, and everything's falling apart. And the only thing they can do at, at that point is try to rebuild. Um, I think that's true, like on a collective scale too, maybe like crisis is sort of like that rock bottom quote unquote. And for some people, maybe it takes that in order to push past our discomfort because it's, it's, yeah. it's uncomfortable making change and like stepping outside of what's normal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And it's hard. It's just so hard to imagine, like, like collectively we've been through so much already. I'm like, what else do we need to go through? <laughs> yeah. To, to have that sense of unity. Um, and what you said about addiction kind of made me think that I think like at least in Oregon addictions peers are a lot more unified at least like I get that sense and I think there are a couple reasons for that I think one is that a lot of times the stories are you know they're not all the same but I feel like there's more um of a pattern in how the story of addiction plays out for folks and you know usually like leading to incarceration you know that, that's not how it goes for everyone but a lot of like really prominent peers that i know uh you know in addictions like that is a part of their story um and i also think that uh there's a lot more community with addictions than mental health because think about like sobriety groups it, it's not just like sitting around and talking but also like going on fishing trips and barbecue and like getting together hanging out and that kind of thing and like there's this big sense of community around that um i feel like we don't have that as much in mental health um, there's some, you know, I go, I go to some support groups and I think that is helpful for what it is, but it is really just focused on like a lot of times like problem solving around like a very specific thing <laughs> and yeah. not always like just more so on that sense of community. I love that you brought that up. Yeah, because it's kind of, it's even part of the recovery culture to at least um, for like the 12 step groups that one of the steps is to like sponsor someone else. And it's mm -hmm. basically like it's built into that culture to um, to give back and guide and support other people. And we don't really have that equivalent because like um, I think part of it is like the closest thing we have to that are like you said, support groups. But because there are so many different kinds of like mental health conditions, like that means there are so many different kinds of support groups. And so there's not like there's that kind of like separation. And then on top of that, the support groups, um, all of them don't necessarily have like that same ethos or culture of like giving back and like sponsoring. So, you know, sponsoring and 
Yeah. In this case, it would be like, you know, peer support. Um, but like on a one-on-one -on -one level, um, yeah, maybe we could like, it sounds like we could probably take some some tips from the CRMs, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Seems like they have something yeah. going on. I think like part of what is hard about 12-step for me is you know, like people will say, oh, you know, you don't have to be religious to do 12 step. Higher power can mean anything. And I'm like, I don't believe there is any higher power. I like, I hear the term higher power and it is meaningless to me. So I think like for some people, they can't even wrap their mind around that, that yeah. it's, I, it's not just that, like, I don't believe in God. It's like that. That is just not a frame of mind I can get into. Um, yeah. So. And it's a little wish... disingenuous too, because like some of those higher yeah. steps like involve basically prayer. So it's like yeah. you can't get around substituting that. Yeah, and I just wish there was like more, like that people could tune into like that sense of loyalty to their community without necessarily needing the religious or, you know, spiritual aspect. <laughs> um, I think that probably my culture is what makes me very loyal as a person because for me, like, it's always been like, family is everything, you know, it doesn't matter if you're, how pissed off you are at your family, you know, they're your blood and like, you gotta, make up, get over it kind of thing. And I, you know, obviously that isn't always a perfect system, but I think it speaks to why, like, I have like a strong sense of loyalty in my relationships and friendships that I, that has not always been reciprocated. That's a great point too. Culture, like, 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 honestly, Western, modern, quote unquote, white culture tends to be <laughs> like very individualistic and doesn't honor loyalty as much. Like, yeah, and I mean, I like my dad passed away a couple years ago, and we were not talking when he passed. So I, I do understand that, like there may be situations where it, it's healthier to just not be in contact with certain people and them being family doesn't override that. I do think right now we're in kind of this weird like cutoff culture where it's just like you have a disconnect and then it's like, well, you're out of my life now. And then some <laughs> just like some people do that a lot. And I'm like, yeah. I don't know how you navigate the world just like cutting off all these relationships at the drop of a hat. Right. <laughs> this is gonna sound really funny, but I was reflecting on this theme actually, and the context of the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> be a really geeky moment, so get ready for this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was like reflecting on um, sort of my takeaway message from the Lord of the Rings and the way I was feeling into it is like, you know, Frodo, he grew up with, I think it was his uncle Bilbo, right? That was his uncle. 
Or, I am so I, bad with names. <laughs> I think Bilbo was his uncle, the, the the protagonist from The Hobbit, the original. And so, like, Frodo is growing up with basically being in the shadow of Bilbo and, like, holding him up mm-hmm. as, like, this person that he respects and looks up to and maybe wants to be like. And, like, oh, man, Bilbo, he has all these stories and and all these amazing things that happened to him and, all, like, the dragon that he fought and all this stuff. And so he's, like, growing up with this and he's living in this, like, very small community, the Shire, and where he hasn't personally had those experiences. Like, he's been kind of holed off and isolated in this this shire maybe that's quote-unquote suburb i don't know (laughs) 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 so like you know he he hasn't had those adventures yet and so he's Mm -hmm. kind of and i think actually a lot of millennials can relate to this um this feeling of um like maybe this message like you can do anything or you like you have this potential or whatever Mm -hmm. you know like um you know, some of us have heard this message and then grown up without having really um, had the experiences and adventures that would push us and expand us. um, That's not... Anyway, let me go back to Frodo and I'll come back to that. (laughs) (laughs) Digression. That's not completely true, but... um, So Frodo, yeah, growing up in the Shire and having this longing, I think, to, like, prove himself... And to maybe this questioning of like, do I have what it takes that Bilbo had too? Do I, um, do I have that in me too? And this, the whole calling of, you know, Gandalf coming in and um, the ring and trying to take it to the mountain to destroy it. Like that whole calling, that was like Mm. the adventure, the opportunity presenting, you know, and in other words, like that's like leaving your comfort zone. Mm-hmm. But I think the whole message, like the way it all kind of wrapped around, like the message that was infused through the whole story that expresses itself in so many different ways, so much so that it makes it really rich and like deep, is that um, no one does that alone. Like, mm-hmm. this, this is how I wanted to bring it back to the millennial thing. So. <laughs> <laughs> So it's like there's there's um, maybe Frodo, he he was in some ways thinking like, oh, he's heard about these friends and allies that Bilbo had, but he's also kind of maybe thinking like, but that was something, that was Bilbo's own um, um, strength and uniqueness and whatever, like mm. like something that maybe I'm missing, like something he had that mm. maybe I, I'm not sure if I have or not. Um, so it was more the focus on personal qualities. And through the whole adventures he went on with the Fellowship of the Ring until the very part where, like, he's at the very last of it and then his friend Sam has to save him from Gollum and the spider. Like, you know, like, at that point, Frodo was helpless. Like, he he could Mm -hmm. not go further and his friend, his ally, saved him. Mm-hmm. And that's what helped him get to the mountain to finish his mission. And that was the moment where maybe before, like, he appreciated everyone and the whole journey. But maybe that's when it really hit, when he was close to death, that he recognized, yeah. shit, like, no one can do this by themselves. No one's supposed yeah. to do this by themselves. This life, adventures, missions, it's it's a collective effort. It's like, 
Bobo, he, he did what he did, but not because he did it by himself, because he was with this amazing group of people. Maybe that was the moment that that was Frodo's realization. And you could mm -hmm. say that was like, um, that was his climax on the hero's journey. Yeah. Just that recognition. Yeah, I mean, it's hard that life doesn't, you know, go so, like, isn't as nicely narratively formatted. <laughs> yeah, I do think just that. Yeah, I do. I do think that, uh, like, a crisis point or <laughs> near death experience can tell you like who your real friends are, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, absolutely. And. and when that happens, like, it's like, that's when you realize that this, this lie we were told since we were young, that we have to do it on our own, that we're only worthy if we can suck it up and find our own strength and do life on our own. It's total bullshit. It's not, it's, um, it's actually really unhealthy mm -hmm. and it leads to shame and it leads to imposter syndrome and thinking like, well, do I have what it takes to get through this? Like, can I do this? But that's that's coming from a mindset of like, I have to do this by myself. I have yeah. to, I have to start my own business by myself. I have to um, um, become successful by myself. Whatever it is, you know, even like achieve wellness and health by myself. Um, but it turns it on its head when you kind of consider like, oh. Maybe like no one can do it by themselves. Like we all need somebody. Yeah. And it's it's tough out there because like I, I I have been realizing that for myself. Like I consider myself to be pretty ambitious, and I for a while I was like I need a mentor. You know, like I need someone to teach me all the things so I can like go off and do them and. I think like that has shifted to, I will have many mentors <laughs> and it will kind of like ebb and flow. Um, I think it's also hard for people to, it just seems like nobody has capacity for anything like that right now. <laughs> I'm like, I yeah. want to learn, I want to grow. And everybody's like, sorry, I don't have time for that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I and, you know, from... that's not, it, it's not always that way, but like I said, it kind of, you know, ebbs and flows, like, mm -hmm. I will learn little bits and pieces from people who I happen to be around at the time and try to ask questions rather than it being an assigned thing. And yeah. I also try to, like, be that mentor for others that I have you know i've experienced that mentorship in the past and like i want to give back in that way even though it's not like directly reciprocal i want to do that for others so i kind of like do that in the moment when i can um but yeah it would be nice to have more of a structure for that because i don't know if that i'm like how many other people out there have that mentality? I don't know. I don't know if others like think about it in that way or if they're just kind of like, well, you know, I'm in whatever position I'm in now. So I just got to like focus on what I need to do in whatever work that is. Um, 
I think yeah. I'm always thinking about the bigger picture, even beyond whatever organization I'm currently working for. So I, I know that not everyone shares that mindset. That's true. But I would be willing to bet that there are some who have that need and it's maybe they're looking for like that kind of community. Like I, I kind yeah. of wonder what it would look like to take like, let's just say bits and pieces of what's working, like bits and pieces of what's working in like the 12 step groups, like maybe even just the idea of like a sponsor, you know, like once you get mm -hmm. to a certain point, it's like the ethos to sponsor someone else. Um, just different bits and pieces from different groups. Um, there are some wellness groups I've been part of where um, there's a culture around like introspection and looking at our own like like biases and stuff and um, culture around like authentic expression, like sharing from a place, even if it's uncomfortable to do so, like sharing like honestly, um, authentically. Yeah, um, to bring some of those elements into like a peer-oriented group, like peer support for peers, kind of. Yeah. Or even like... That would be cool. Maybe even that's thinking of it too small, like, because, I mean, recovery isn't like recovery for CRMs. It's like, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. so integral to the whole process of that to think of um peer support is integral to to this like and mentorship is integral to this like i guess this this would um this could maybe look two different ways like on the one hand it could look like an affiliation of different wellness groups with different themes like different experiences of mental health but they're all kind of still under the same umbrella with the same, you could say, guiding principles and ethos. Or it could look like one overall self-actualization or wellness recovery group where um, it's totally diagnosis neutral and it's more about like mm -hmm. general principles to like living well and finding connection and wellness. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing is, like, even if something feels small to start with, it's, like, more than we already had, <laughs> and you can always build on it, mm -hmm. so that's something to think about, too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just brainstorming, but that's... The... Yeah. Yeah, it, it has me curious, like, what if there was a group like that, like, like, basically the mental health or the wellness version of sobriety groups, sort of. Hmm. I know there's Emotions Anonymous, but I've never been. Oh, <laughs> so yeah. I don't know what that's like either. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like, you know, even, um, like you were saying, like the focus on a higher power when it comes to like formal 12 mm -hmm. steps, it's like, it, it's not totally inclusive. <laughs> um, yeah. So like even, so that would probably be a principle like that wouldn't 
doesn't have to be in, be incorporated, but it could be, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just thinking like, could pull from different things. I know like with the CS, with like some of the CSX movement and hearing voices network and stuff like that, um, they brought together like resources straight from the community itself. Like, um, like questionnaires asking everyone like what works for you for navigating your experiences and then like pulling all that stuff together. Um, so like that's like one thing they've done. Um, yeah, I, I wonder what that would look like with like different people coming, different people coming together who are trying to find wellness and being like, what's worked for you already? What hasn't worked? Um, what are things that we could experiment with that seem promising and just what what's like a code of conduct or a, like an ethos we can have, you know, together that can guide us? Yeah, I mean, you know, that could be interesting. I mean, I, I, I guess like kind of what I'm thinking is like Purepocalypse is has been something where that's an opportunity where a lot of peers come together every year. But there's not like a continuation of it. So I guess it would be cool to like, like Purepocalypse could be an opportunity to like introduce this idea and be like, you know, from those attending, like, how do we do, you know, how do we do this? <laughs> like, how do yeah. we, like, we have this great sense of community here. How do we like continue that over the course of the year when we're not all <laughs> in one place physically? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. I'm just thinking to that, like with, with 12 steps, the founder of that just kind of went ahead and like wrote, wrote up the book, like on his own, um, I'm not sure if he had any influences on it. I'm sure he did, you know, I'm sure it didn't just come out of thin air, but, um, I'm finding that a lot of things in mental health were like co-opted from indigenous people. So yeah, <laughs> like Maslow's hierarchy of needs and other stuff I'm not thinking of mm. right now. So I'm not saying that's what it is, but it's happened enough times. It could be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of co-optation, you know, like mindfulness is technically a co-optation. You know, Yoga. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of that going on. DBT, yeah. you know, <laughs> half of DBT is co-opted. Yeah. I mean, well, maybe not half, but part of <laughs> parts of it. You know? Right. Yeah. Acceptance, commitment, therapy, some aspects of that are co-opted yeah peer support <laughs> peer, peer support I mean, yeah i mm -hmm. i mean i think some of that is it's shifts you know it it's the shifting thing it's changing and it's gonna vary depending on what the setting is yeah um so I'm getting kind of hungry, so we should wrap up soon. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Any closing statements? 
Closing statements. Um, yeah, I mean, like, we need a more sense of community with our peer. You know, I, I think just mental health in general, like, how do we tap into that sense of community and how do we all come together as a peer workforce? Those are like really interesting things to think about. And um, I think like personally, this conversation speaks to me a lot because I've been trying to just in general, get more in tune with a sense of community, like trying to figure out ways to meet people where I live and that kind of thing. Um, and potentially try to find aspects of community that are not just peer because I also don't want to be like all peer stuff all the time, which is kind of funny yeah. doing a peer support podcast, but <laughs> I, I like how you, I think it's healthy like to have balance. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Yeah. It shouldn't be, well, it doesn't have to be every someone's whole life to bounce off yeah. that. Um, I just have, I have one more question. Would you consider it, um, let, let's just say there are two possibilities. So on one hand mm -hmm. is the way things are right now with peers entering this as a profession and getting paid. And then on the other hand, what if it was um, more like the 12-step model where it's, it's like a non-professional, non-paid type of thing. It's just like a community-driven thing. And people yeah aren't getting paid like um and i'm just thinking with that second option um because obviously there are going to be people who are like struggling financially and trying to figure out their employment situation you know that's one of the attractive things about peer support it gives mm -hmm. like employment financial stability and a sense of purpose to people who might not otherwise have it so like that is that is an important consideration and also i wonder if um if there was already a way that was built in like just in a free community centered way if if it would almost be better for the focus to be more on like how can we support you in doing like what you want to do the most like like do you want to be an artist do you want to be a, a computer mm -hmm. programmer do you want to like um, write a book and publish it like more focus on like that you know yeah, I, well, I think one of the challenges they run into with that is just like how society is set up right now that, you know, everything is like financially driven and, um, yeah, you'd have to like set up different system. <laughs> like you could have a comp, like a peer commune or something where, you know, it's like everybody's like giving and receiving peer support. That sounds nice. You know, you'd have to figure out how to, to make that, like... It could be, yeah, it could be I... like, a, a community, like, um, let's just say, like, people, you know, just staying in whatever homes that they have. Mm. There's this... Sorry, my brain's operating faster than I can speak right now. Um, like, <laughs> like, networks of sharing, like, food and resources and... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I... I'm just, you know. I mean, I think some of that does exist. It's but it doesn't it's have to all hard. be. Hard. I yeah, it it's hard. Like I think there are pros and cons to both having you know 
it being something that's paid or versus having it be, um, you know, totally voluntary and volunteer kind of thing. Um, it, I think it, it, at least for me, past a certain point, because of the emotional labor piece, it becomes difficult to imagine, like, not being paid for that and um, the exception being, you know, in conversations that I have where, like, I know that's going to be, like, a reciprocal situation <laughs> of, like, yeah. you know, kind of like a peer support conversation that's friendly and you have that back and forth. Yeah, totally. Um, I just think that, you know... The way it is with capitalism right now, it's going to be really hard to imagine what that looks like in in a way where, you know, folks are not getting paid. And I, I'm not saying there isn't a way to do it. It's just like people's, people don't have enough energy right now. <laughs> like, I think it's like, how do we get that sense of energy back for those types of things? And I think some of that would require, like, totally flipping the entire system that we have right now, because it's, yeah. if you're working 40 hours a week, that's going to totally drain you. You know, whether you're working in the mental health field or not, that's going to drain you from the ability to provide that kind of support to others. It is. It is. And, and this is the big question I've been really sitting with. Because I really want to see how this could be possible. I feel like it could be possible, but yeah, it might not be. It, it might not be clear right away just how, and it probably wouldn't be easy at all. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I I think yeah. that like online communities could be more tapped into because I have tried to look at like a subreddit, a Facebook group for peer workers, and it's like. There was some, but the participation is extremely low. Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks, like there's one Facebook group I'm in where a lot of folks are, you know, really new to it. There's not like seasoned peer workers in those groups, you know, other than me, I guess. <laughs> like, not that mm -hmm. I know of. So I think that that is something that could be explored a lot more. Okay, so we're going to wrap this up since it looks like <laughs> Andrew's recording isn't working right now. Sorry, um, guys. That's okay. Um, so I have a, a wrap-up icebreaker question. Nice. Um, what is something you thought would be a great idea but was terrible when you actually did it? Ooh. Oh, you're back. <laughs> oh, I'm back. I'll let you answer this one first. Okay, so... Uh, oh God. <laughs> um, there was this uh, guy that I had a, a crush on for a long time, and we were, like, talking over Facebook Messenger for, you know, a couple of years. We had gone uh, to a year of college together, and it was like, you know... When I told him how I felt, it was just like, 
very like emotionally it was a lot you know it was like very <laughs> strong connection and um yeah going into that relationship was a, t a terrible idea for a lot of reasons i mean i think i learned that high passion also means high volatility when you are fighting <laughs> yeah i value stability and um he just did not communicate very well about like his intentions of like I, like i didn't realize going into the relationship that he 100 percent for sure was gonna move out of state at the end of that year and like there was just so many miscommunications going into that i'm like <laughs> it was like such a yeah. bad idea but my love chemicals overrode like asking about those types of things <laughs> yeah I have definitely been there. <laughs> um, man. And it's a learning process too, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I learned a lot from that experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, the question is, um, what did you do that you regret? what is something that you thought was a great idea going into it, but it was actually terrible once you did it? Yeah. That's a tough one for me because a lot of my life experiences felt so mixed, like lots mm -hmm. of bittersweet experiences. Um, I guess like going to PSU for some reason is coming up and I think it's because I had such a great experience in community college. Like, I felt like there was a lot of community mm -hmm. there, like literally community and um, it was really <laughs> yeah. easy. Yeah, it's, that's the beauty of it. You know, it felt more intimate. It was really easy to meet and talk with people. And I made like a bunch of friends there. Um, it was honestly, that was like one of the best eras of my life. Like when I was in community college, that's mm -hmm. one of the times I was like genuinely happy. And I guess I was going into like university with, those same expectations. And at least when I went to Portland State, I was not met with those expectations in the same way. Like, oh. I met, you know, I met a few cool people and had, you know, some experiences here and there that were cool. But I would say all in all, like it wasn't anywhere close to community college for me. It wasn't nearly as joyful or creative or um, expansive. Like it was and it actually felt really lonely a lot of the time. It felt I felt very disconnected from mm -hmm. the school. So, but I was also going half time, and I was like, you know, I wasn't. Um, I lived close by. I lived just down the street from there. So, like geographically, like I was like more involved there than at the community college. But um, yeah, I just felt disconnected from the community. That's really interesting because, like, I. Like, one of my best friends I met at PSU, and um, I had a lot of, like, going to community college, I also did get, meet a good friend there, but I had so many, like, attempted connections that just, like, did not work out at community college. Um, so, that's interesting. Yeah. But I also, I went to, like, 
different locations too. <laughs> so maybe that contributed to some of that with community college. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wonder if it's like, if, if it's in your home state, was it in your home state? Yeah. Okay. Cause there might be, so, um, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I went to community college, it, um, I, I grew up in Nevada. It was in, I was in Reno, but it was, you know, still Nevada. So I think there's, um, no. yeah, maybe something around that too. Uh, yeah, maybe. All right. Well, if you've made it this far, thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs> well, see y'all next time. <laughs>